Hello, church family. Welcome to church. It's great to have you with us this morning. Uh, Merry Christmas. I know Christmas is over now, but Merry Christmas. The celebration of Jesus' arrival has come, and now we wait with anticipation of a day when we get to celebrate with Jesus together in his kingdom. Today, we are going to continue our study through the book of Luke, taking a look at a very unique passage in Scripture. In fact, it's the only recorded account of this in the Bible, and it's Luke 2, verses 41 and 52. It's the only account that we have of Jesus' life in the 30-year gap between the birth narrative and his ministry. I've often wondered over the years as I've studied the Bible and done devotionals what it was like to be Jesus as a child and what he was like. And this is the only account that we have here in the Bible where we even get a glimpse of what it would have been like to be Jesus. Pastor Dave and I were musing a few days ago in my office about what it must have been like for Mary and Joseph to have this perfect child. I mean, can you imagine telling your kid to just go clean their room and the answer was yes? I, that is certainly not the experience at our house. I mean, Jesus, it's, it's time for dinner. You know, don't make me ask again. And Jesus is just like, yeah, of course, mom. Of course I'll listen. Like, no problem. For Mary and Joseph, this is like winning the parent lottery. It's the kid we all wanted to have. As we look at today's passage, I want, I want us to keep in mind that these aren't just characters in a story. These are real people who got to live this situation out in the presence of their friends and family. They had this perfect child, and the Bible tells us that there were moments when they were raising Jesus when they just marveled at the things that they saw and the things they were witnessing. God's plan and savior for the world was growing up in front of their eyes. So it must have been quite the shock for Mary and Joseph when baby number two showed up on the scene, and lo and behold, this child was not God. <laughs> what a shock. Probably completely different raising that child than raising Jesus. But this is the situation that Mary and Joseph had found themselves in. They were raising the son of God and all the while being a normal family, just like yours and mine. So why would Luke include this story of Jesus in his maturing years? It would seem likely that there's probably several possibilities, and we do find some of them as we read through the, the scripture. But at least from a literary standpoint, Luke is using this story to get us ready because Jesus is about to take the stage. Up until this point in the story, it's been about the preparation of Jesus' arrival, the fulfillment of prophecies, and his parents' role in this whole story. But now Luke is moving us beyond this as he prepares us for the entrance of Jesus. There's a sense as we read this section that something different is about to happen. Jesus will be more than a prophet, more than a king, more than anybody else before him. He will change the way religion looks, the way we encounter and approach God, the way we live our daily lives. And of course, he is going to be the once for all sacrifice for sin. Jesus will be a game changer. Life will not be the same after Jesus comes on the scene. And so Luke is setting the stage for the arrival of this world-changing Jesus, the very Son of God. The story of Jesus as a boy begins in Luke 2.41 with his parents taking their regular trip to Jerusalem to observe the feast of the Passover. There were three 
pilgrimage feasts that Jewish people were required to take every year to Jerusalem to partake in celebrations for the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, these were important festivals in the Jewish culture. The Passover is the one that we are most familiar with, and and what it is is the celebration of Israel's deliverance and freedom from slavery in Egypt. When the angel of death literally passed over the homes that had the blood of a lamb uh, over their doorposts, meanwhile, the firstborn son in the homes without the blood was killed. Now, this was a horrible event in Egypt's history, but it was the final act of God's judgment against Pharaoh. And at that point, that is when Pharaoh agreed to allow the Israelites to leave. And so this is what they were celebrating at the time. And we read in 241 that every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. These were pious people. Mary and Joseph were like your regular church attenders. Uh, They volunteered in children's ministry. They bought more than their share of food to potlucks. They celebrated Jesus at Christmas time, not Santa Claus. I mean, that one's obvious because he was their son. But the point is, these people did their best to raise their child and their family according to the religious customs of the day and in the most culturally appropriate manner. So they observed these feasts and made this semi-regular trip to Jerusalem with their family. In verse 42, we read, when he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. Notice Luke is using the word they here. At this point in the narrative, Mary and Joseph are a big part of the story still, but that is about to change as we progress through this account. He goes on to write in 43 through 45, after the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was with them in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. Okay, remember, these are ordinary people, so words like they were unaware or they began looking for him don't really convey a lot of emotion, but... I would imagine that if they lost their child, they were probably freaking out. They have traveled a day only to realize that they have forgotten their son in Jerusalem. There's no quick way back. This is the classic moment in Home Alone where the plane is taking off and the mother and father are sitting on the plane and she's going, oh man, I feel like I forgot something. And then she's like, oh, Kevin! But there's nothing they can do. They're on an airplane flying over the ocean, and it's going to be a long time before they can even reach somebody to go check on their son. Several years ago, we went on a trip to Disneyland as a family, and my parents were there, and my brother and sister, and we were standing outside of a restaurant in a very crowded Disney world, and my father had taken our son Bennett, two years old, And he was running up and down this small set of steps on this pavilion a few hundred feet away from where we were. And we were trying to decide if we should go into this restaurant and eat dinner. And at some point, my dad had brought Bennett back and was involved in this discussion. And we decided, yeah, this is a place we were going to eat. Let's go in. Only to realize our son was no longer standing with us in the group. And we were... We were uh, freaking out, not sure where, where he was. This was a, 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 a crowded space with lots of people, and Bennett was nowhere to be found. So we found out and immediately started looking for him. To make matters worse, Michelle and I were reading through the book, The Shack, 
And if you're familiar with the book, The Shack, it's all about this family whose daughter was abducted and, and murdered. And it's the journey of the father through this great sadness in their life and his encounters with God through that journey. And so this is what's going through my head as we begin looking for our son. And it seemed like an eternity before we found him, probably was only a few minutes, but we did find him eventually. He had wandered back to that pavilion and he was walking up and down the stairs as toddlers do, just playing around and thankfully was safe. After this, I didn't even wanna go back to Disney World the next day. I was afraid of what could happen if we lost him again, this sadness that would come over me and I was sick to my stomach about what could have happened. At any rate, this is the situation Mary and Joseph find themselves in. They have traveled for a whole day, they have lost their son, and now it's gonna take at least a day to get back to, to begin searching for him. And before you judge them thinking, how could they be so careless? Traveling was different back then. You didn't just simply look around the car and notice there was an empty seat. They would have traveled on foot and they would have traveled in caravans, not the Dodge kind. And they would do this for safety, to protect them from uh, thieves or wild animals. And again, it would probably provide some entertainment along the journey. Often women would travel in one group, men would travel in another further behind, and the kids could be in either of those groups or perhaps even traveling in between them. So there must have been some communication about which group Jesus is in because at the end of this day's journey, they realize Jesus is not with them. I can only imagine if this had been Michelle and I at the end of the day, she would have said to me, like, hey, Joel, can you go get Jesus and, and bring him in? It's, it's time to get cleaned up and get ready for bed. Uh, wait a minute, I thought he was with you. And she would say to me, no, when we were leaving Jerusalem, I said to you, you get the son of God and I'll do everything else. And then I would have one of those husband moments where I kind of chuckle and say, oh, oh yeah, I vaguely remember you saying something like that. At that point, she probably would have had many more words for me, some of which would be very inappropriate to say right now. And maybe if this is the conversation that happened between Mary and Joseph, this is why we don't see Joseph alive in the story in the Bible anymore. At any rate, before Joseph's mysterious disappearance, they travel back a full day to Jerusalem to begin searching for their son. When we lost Bennett, it was only for like a few minutes and it wrecked me for days. But Mary and Joseph have lost the savior of the world and their son all at the same time. So I can't even imagine the anxiety that they felt as they traveled back and the sleepless nights before they found him again. Verse 46 goes on to tell us, after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. If you lost your child for three days, I'm not sure what condition you would expect to find them in, but I'm guessing that this scenario is not the one that you would have expected. They find Jesus sitting in the temple amongst the knowledgeable and most learned people of the day, just soaking up all of the knowledge that he can. Now, they didn't have internet back then, so their exposure to God and faith and religion was limited. So a trip to the temple like this provided a significant opportunity for them to experience these things. And this is what Jesus had been enjoying for those three days. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. Verse 46 makes it seem like Jesus is the only one learning when they find him. But this 12-year-old boy was astonishing all of these very intelligent people with the answers to the questions that they were asking him. 
One of the more obvious ways that we know Jesus is changing the world is how he speaks. When Jesus spoke, his words were powerful. They were full of authority, and his words don't just hold power in the past. They are powerful and authoritative even today. His words aren't just bound by the expectations of anyone, and they are able to transcend culture and time. His truth is constant and remains in effect throughout eternity. Over the course of history, many cultures have tried to push against this truth that Jesus spoke. But the Bible tells us that this world will pass away. The kingdoms of this world, uh, the sinful patterns that we've built, all of the impure and unholy living that we do, that will pass away. But his words, his truth, will never pass away. Jesus' truth isn't bound by time. It's timeless. The truth he speaks hold true forever, right from our time now straight through into eternity. So in John 3.16, when Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He meant it. And that will not, it cannot, and it does not change. God's love for us, because Jesus spoke it, is rock solid. It doesn't matter if we mess up horribly or no one around, and no one around us wants to be around us anymore. Jesus' words spoken then don't change. His gracious offer to us still stands. So how does he do it? How does he speak in such a different and world-changing way? This is actually simple. Jesus' devotion isn't to people's expectations of him. And he isn't phased by cultural whims. His primary concern is the will of the Father. That is why his answers amaze us. Jesus isn't trying to play to our expectations or tell us what our itching ears want to hear. He is simply speaking the timeless truth of the Father. These are the truths that can cut through to our hearts and help us to receive his grace and love. It's why we hear stories of people who are like murderers finding salvation because his truth is able to cut through even the darkest, deepest, darkest heart. But his truth can also offend culture because it doesn't conform to what culture needs truth to approve of. You see, the problem with culture is, is it changes. Culture is the moving target, but Jesus' words are constant. They don't change. His truth remains the same. In the second half of verse 48, we see Mary is frustrated with Jesus because he is not meeting her expectations of him. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Jesus' response here almost seems a bit cheeky or disrespectful. But remember, his perspective is he is the son of God. And his first priority is the will of the Father. So if he wasn't with his family, where else would he be but in his Father's house? This, this is a logical conclusion for Jesus. So he isn't being disobedient to his parents. He's actually demonstrating his unshakable commitment to the Father. And in doing so, he reveals just how different his priorities are from yours and mine. How often do we let people and culture influence our thinking and behavior? 
This is a question worth reflecting on because if we want to be more like Jesus, then we need to be cautious about how much culture affects what we do. In Jesus' day, the religious system heavily influenced how they spoke and what they did. Uh, Speaking against this culture could even cost you your life. In our culture, identity, tolerance, division, climate change, COVID, many of these things affect how we act and how we speak. It's a different look than in Jesus' day, but it's the same game. And that's why Jesus is a game changer because he enters the scene and he isn't affected by the cultural messages that are pushing against him in all directions. Unaffected, he speaks timeless truth. And I can't help but think how much better off we would be if we could put culture aside and replace it with more of Jesus' truth. Our world-changing Savior and our life-transforming Savior. It's hard to be anything but lukewarm when we try to balance ourselves between our worldly expectations and our heavenly expectations on our lives. No one can serve two masters, the Bible tells us. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and you will despise the other. Matthew 6, 24. If we want to see this world-changing Jesus at work in our mix, we need to set aside the expectations of culture and the world and focus on the timeless truth of Christ. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18. When we do this, some people are going to think we're crazy. And others are gonna admire faith. But you know what? Jesus wasn't concerned with any of this when he spoke. He just wanted to carry out the will of the Father, which allowed him to speak the timeless truth, timeless truth to those he ministered to. We can do this as well by the power of the Holy Spirit as we set worldly expectations aside and adopt this timeless truth of the Savior. Verse 49 says, Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. Another way that we see Jesus as this world-changing person is in how he embraces the bigger picture. One of the questions that I have wondered regarding Jesus' development years was, did he know that he was the son of God? Part of my curiosity is because if he knew he was the son of God, that means that he willingly chose to remain a child, subjecting himself to growing and learning. To persevere through 30 years of development before the Holy Spirit would descend on him and then lead him into ministry, which is why he was here. If my kids knew that they were God's son, our house would have some serious problems. I would imagine... Many of us in our house would be like smote and then raised back to life on a daily basis. I also believe that they would turn all of the water in the home into root beer, which would more than likely make showering very uncomfortable. But this is not what Jesus was like. These verses show us that Jesus was in fact aware of his divinity, but he didn't use that for his own benefit. Even though he knew he was God, he submitted to the process to experience humanity so he could be fully God and fully human. When Jesus asks, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Luke reveals Jesus understood who he was even at 12 years old. You don't claim to be in your father's house unless you are a son or a daughter. 
And since Jesus is in fact the son of God, his claim to be in his father's house when he is in the temple of God shows us that he knew about his sonship and demonstrates his awareness that he was, he was fully comprehending this fact. As one commentary puts it, Jesus' recognition of his sonship in these passages shows us the fulfillment of the prophetic announcement of the angels to Mary back in Luke verses 135 saying that she would give birth to the Holy One who would be called the Son of God. So when Jesus acknowledges that he is in his Father's house, he is claiming the fulfillment of a prophecy and acknowledging his awareness of his divinity all at once. So growing up must have been quite a thing for Jesus, knowing he created the world and yet being subject to this human body. But he embraces the bigger picture and submits himself to the experience of human development. I find his patience and perseverance incredible. He never exploits people. He never garners any special treatment for himself. He submits to the Father's will for his life and accepts his lowly status. He came into creation, not as a king and not as a lord, but as this approachable baby in a manger. As a student, eagerly filling his mind with truth and wisdom. As a servant to the sick and poor, and eventually as the sacrificial lamb to pay for the misgivings of his creation. Jesus, knowing who he was as the son of God, never tried to change the father's plan for his life. And I find his submission and his perseverance for the bigger picture fascinating. Have you ever found yourself at a place in life that you wanted to be out of, but despite pleading with God, he kept you right where you were? Now, I don't believe there's anything wrong with asking God to get us out of a situation that we're in and, and praying for that. But what do we do when he doesn't? How do we respond when our prayers seemingly go unanswered? I remember a particular desert experience in my life when I called out to God to get me out of a certain situation and my prayers just seemed to hit the ceiling. They didn't do anything. And I wrestled with that, and I struggled with that. And, and it even caused me to have some significant anger towards the Lord and frustration, and made me, certainly made me feel like my prayers were going unanswered. Like, like, God, why aren't you taking me out of this? I'm miserable, and I can't even see what kind of a purpose you would have for me in this. But you know what happened? As I begin to reflect and go, well, God's not taking me out of this process, so he must want me to go through it. And as I begin to change my attitude and the way that I looked at the situation I was in and accept the will of the Father that he wanted me to walk through this, it began to change the way that I prayed. Instead of asking God to remove me from the situation, I would pray, God, give me strength to endure this. God, give me encouragement so that I can see the other side of this. And what started to happen when I began to pray like that was I began to see my prayers answered. God would give me strength. God would give me encouragement. I remember one specific time, I prayed for encouragement and within a day, that prayer was answered. I had this huge amount of encouragement that came into my life. And so God began to answer my prayers as I accepted the spot that he had me in. If we want to see our prayers answered, we should stop praying against the Father's will and start embracing it. If his 
plan is for us, he will provide the means to sustain us. Jesus had all the reason in the world to get out of the situation that he was in. Think about the angels that day when he was born, praising and singing glory to God in the highest. That is what Jesus left, that kind of praise and adoration to take up this lowly position in history. But he embraced the bigger picture and he submitted himself to the process for 33 years so that he would be this world-changing savior. Our passage concludes in verse 51 and 52. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. We see Luke has made the transition here, uh, placing Jesus now at the centers of the stage in history. At the beginning of the story, he wrote, you know, they went up, referring to Mary and Joseph and Jesus. They went up to Jerusalem. But now he's saying he went down to Nazareth. He's setting the stage for this world-changing Savior. But the question is left, how is the world going to respond to him? Up until this point, Luke has shown us how a few people respond when they encounter this world-changing Savior. There's Mary and Joseph. We see the shepherds. There's John and Elizabeth, Simeon and Anna at the temple, and now these teachers of the law. Probably the best response to him is Mary. We see a couple of times how she treasured these encounters with Jesus in her heart. Once when the shepherds described this angelic announcement that came, and another as they approach Jesus in the temple and they see him in the temple courts. We've got to remember that Mary is an ordinary person. We view her differently than she view her, views herself. We know her as Jesus' mom. Uh, she has witnessed all these miracles that he's been a part of. She's also witnessed her son's death. We view Mary with all the knowledge of the New Testament. However, Mary doesn't have this. She is experiencing all of this firsthand as it unfolds. At this point in time, she is simply just a devout Jewish girl responding to who Jesus is and what this world-changing Savior is all about as she experiences him, as his life unfolds in front of her. And she treasures all of these things that she witnesses. What is your treasure? The Bible says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. My wife and I teach various different financial uh, courses, personal financial courses. And at the beginning of every course, one of the things we do is we have every participant write down the things that they value most in life. After they've done that, we have them go over all of their bank statements and credit card statements for the past three months. At the end of this, they put them side by side and they see how their spending is lining up with what they value in life. It almost never lines up. And so that begins the challenge of how do they line up their spending with what they value in life. Does your life line up with what you say you value? Does your life appropriately reflect the presence of this world-changing savior? I wonder if we asked our friends or our spouses what they would say about us and how they would answer that question for us. Don't, don't worry, we're not gonna ask them. Mary's response to seeing this amazing child conveying the promises of God before her eyes was to treasure them. Folks, the amazing truth of Christmas is not just for Mary. 
Emmanuel is God with us, coming down to dwell among us. Jesus is here with us, and we can experience him, and we can know him to the point that we can treasure him. You know when people call the gospel the good news? It's because of this. It's because the good news that they are talking about is that we can know Jesus, we can understand him to the point that we can treasure him in our hearts and all of the truth that comes with him. This whole concept is sort of a dividing line in the sand because if it is true and he is knowable and we can experience Jesus, then what is our response to this amazing world-changing savior? If he has come to earth and meets us here right now, right where we are as sinners in a broken world, what are we doing with that? Friends, we have the living word of God in Jesus. Grab a hold of him in your life and treasure him. Ask him for his saving grace and forgiveness. He will give that to you. He is truth and he is here for us. We just have to grab a hold of him with faith. Several years ago, I had my devotional life flipped upside down when I took a class led by Pastor Ken Dick uh, from Freedom Sessions. And I think it was called Reading Your Bible for All It's Worth or something like that. And he introduced me to a, a t- this, this approach, very practical approach to reading your Bible where you read it through and paid attention to what you thought the Holy Spirit was bringing to your mind as you read the words on the page. And then after you were done, you would journal the different revelations that you had. Now, I don't have a problem with those read your Bible in a year plans. I think those are great, and those help us discipline ourselves to actually read our Bible. But for me, taking the time to slow down and really reflect and meditate and pray through passages of Scripture has given me an unparalleled experience in my time with Jesus. God's quiet whisper to us is often not found in the hurry we live every day. It's found in the quiet moments at the feet of our teacher. This is where I have learned to treasure Jesus and understand what this world-changing Savior means in my life. Now, I can't make this decision for you, but if I were you, I wouldn't let another moment go by without grabbing a hold of what we have in Jesus and treasuring it. We have this timeless truth and the Savior for our sins standing right in front of us with open arms. Hold on to him like you would a million dollars on a subway car full of people. Once we have that kind of value in our Lord Jesus, then I think we will start to see the amazing power of this world-changing Jesus in our lives. So what do you treasure? Do you treasure this amazing world-changing Savior? Are you grabbing a hold of the timeless truth that he offers to me and you? I would challenge you to reflect on that this week as you go out. Do we treasure Jesus the way Mary did as she experienced him, as she saw this world-changing Savior develop and grow right in front of her very eyes? Let's pray. Father God, We thank you for what you've given us in Jesus. We thank you that you submitted to this process of being human. You're the God of the universe, and yet you accepted this lowly status for us so that you could know what it's like to be fully human and fully God. 
God, I pray that you would stir in our hearts to seek after you and to treasure you more than we would treasure anything else in our lives. Help us to understand the reality of the gift that is in front of us in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.